It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and you're very welcome along to this week's edition of the group chat from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined in studio as always by news correspondent Zara King. Hello. And Richard Chambers. Hey, yeah. How have you been? Good, yeah. Good. Uh, Where's the final stretch before Christmas now? We are. This is our, our last kind of formal episode of the year. We will be back in the week between Christmas and New Year's, but this is like our our semi grand finale. Not that it looks all that grand because we're still just doing the regular. I have to ask the standard yet. question that you ask everyone you're meeting this week is Have you the shopping done? No. No, I don't either. You are very organised this year. I'm generally quite good at you it. Are quite I'm good. pretty much yeah. there. A couple of bits and bobs need sorting, but yeah, I think we're all right. Full, full disclosure that you got an email just before we started recording to, the, to say that one particular thing may not arrive on time. So we'll, I trust you to improvise as you always will. You're a very resourceful man. Um, we mentioned last week uh, we were going to bookmark a chat about Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, we will talk about other events, but uh, Richard, this is something that you've been keeping an eye on because we all remember. After the outbreak of war in Ukraine last year, mm. Zelensky was kind of fated as this international hero. He was the time person of the year, I think, last year. Yep. He was a very fated man. And very quietly, as Ukraine has slipped further down the news agenda, so too has Vladimir Zelensky's maybe personal popularity waned a little bit. Tell us more. Yeah, um, he is increasingly unpopular in Ukraine um, for a man who, as you say, was was fated around the world as, you know, an incredible leader. He was flying around the place, drumming up support internationally for Ukraine's efforts to expel Russia from its country. Uh, His approval ratings have slumped down to about 32% in Ukraine. Uh, And that is basically because of the failed counteroffensive, which Ukraine had repeatedly denied was a failed counteroffensive all the way through the summer. Remember what we had for for about, there's a period for about four to six months before the counteroffensive began where Ukraine was talking of, we need all the, you know, the munitions and all of the tanks and all of the artillery that we can get because we're going to push Russia back and we're going to reclaim loads of territory. What eventually happened in the end is that they didn't reclaim a whole lot back uh, because Russia had already dug in. And there's been a lot of blame shifted around in Ukraine internally about, you know, who's responsible for this failed counteroffensive. A lot of the Ukrainian public has rolled in behind uh, the head of the armed forces in Ukraine. He is the most popular man in Ukraine at this moment in time. He is having a major rift with Vladimir Zelensky as to the strategy and to how things have gone. So that has played out uh, massively over the last while. And then I think one of the most popular, most noteworthy people in Ukraine uh, is the mayor of Kyiv, who is Vitaly Klitschko, the former, uh, you know, boxing champion. He of the mm. Klitschko b- brothers. Uh, and he has effectively accused Vladimir Zelensky of taking Ukraine down a path towards author- author- authoritarianism, um, basically saying that he stamped out a lot of the, you know, civil liberties that people would have. Mm. And it all just comes at a time when things aren't going particularly well for, for Zelensky. If you look back to last year, as you say, Gav, time person of the year, everybody was you know, he was the flavour of the month absolutely everywhere because mm. of what he was doing and standing for democracy mm. and the, in ter- the ter- territorial sovereignty of Ukraine. But now absolutely everything is backfiring on him, even in the US, not getting a huge uh, red carpet welcome as he tries to get military aid to continue the war against Russia. 
and things, you know, the rug being pulled out from under him at home as well. Is part of this, do you think, that sort of there's an element of ongoing fatigue about it now that like people sort of get into something, they, you know, they back their leader. There's a sort of emboldened sense of um, patriotism in that and that actually as time goes on, maybe that's starting to wane with people because obviously in the beginning, nobody knew how long this would go on for. Nobody really you know, understood, you know, was it going to be three months, six months? Was it going to be six years? Nobody actually knew. Mm. And I look at things like when you talk about Richard, you know, people talking about maybe civil liberties and there's certain policies that people mightn't realise things like, or, or maybe, you know, examples of things like, you know, people, Ukrainians abroad, for example, will say that they won't take holidays until the war is over. And the only holiday they'll take is to go back home to visit loved ones. Mm. That, you know, they've all committed to this sort of, you know, unified sense of, you know, sacrifice while the war is ongoing. But actually, you know, when you commit to that without knowing the end date, it's very difficult yeah. to stay optimistic and positive and stay behind the person who's sort of leading that charge as well. Yeah, and imagine that that kind of resolve does wane over time, that if you say you're not going to take a holiday until it's over, but we're now almost two years in mm. and there's no obvious prospect of it ending very soon, so suddenly you're getting into a third or a fourth year. And eventually, like surely just in, in self-interest, that resolve kind of breaks. And interestingly, and I just had to Google it there. It isn't the case that Ukraine is still under martial law. Mm. That I think in the, in the immediate aftermath of the invasion in, in February last year, basically a lot of democratic checks and balances were suspended and haven't been restored yet, which I also imagine, Richard, if people aren't happy with the general way in which the country is running and you've sort of countered or locked down any ability for people to demonstrate or do anything counter to the government's thinking, then makes it all the more difficult for you to have the the very healthy expression of dissatisfaction you might otherwise have. Yeah, and there was meant to be, like, by calendar and by, you know, um, by rotation, there should be presidential elections in Ukraine next spring. Zelensky says, obviously, that's impossible to happen because of martial law and because, mm. you know, so much of the country is still under bombardment. There was, you know, further missile attacks on Kiev, which were intercepted overnight as of time of recording. Um, but there does seem to be a sense of war weariness there. I mean, Klitschko has accused Zelensky of a number of mistakes. And I think that's probably what is playing out in terms of his approval ratings as well there. Um, but yeah, all not entirely well there in terms of that united front of the West around Zelensky because he went to Washington then mm. uh, to Congress, which was bitterly divided in the US, to try and secure military aid to try and allow him to continue to fight the war. And that has been... You know, it's it's it's, it's not gone according yeah. to plan at all. I hadn't realised that the reception was as frosty. So I, I knew that from in terms of outcomes, you know, he was going over there to try and break the logjam because they've had the, the spending limits that they've reached and there's been a cutback on foreign aid and foreign military uh, support as far as that goes. I didn't realise that the, the welcome had been as relatively frosty as it might have been as well. That like, Are they beginning to, to show a bit of fatigue on the hill as well? Seems to be anyway. Republicans in particular mm. just aren't. They, they just they, it's become a big political issue for them that they don't want to see more and more you know billions and billions of dollars shipped over to Ukraine, which is you know it's it seems like if you were to go back even ten years and say that Republicans will be the party who are like we don't want to spend money on you know this sort of hawkish sort of thing, yeah. it wouldn't really be the done thing. But that just shows how much the likes of Donald Trump have shifted what the Republicans in in the US are into. So yeah, it's 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 a wild one. Biden has been making these appeals saying, look, we need to do this. Otherwise, you're going to let Putin win this thing. I was just going to say that. If, without the support, then what's the alternative if you let Putin win? Well, that, that's an interesting thing that will almost certainly be a big talking point next year because we're going to have a presidential election where Donald Trump is going to be running on this platform of, 
he won't call it isolationism, but he'll sort of talk about basically letting the rest of the world run their own affairs, not having America meddling and supporting other countries as much as they currently are, with the obvious exception of Israel, which we might get back to again in a few minutes' time. Um, so, yeah, an interesting question. This, of course, is the whole reason why Vladimir Zelensky and his wife, uh, the First Lady, have been doing this tour of Western countries, trying to say, listen, lads, please don't forget about us. Um, mm. I, I'd note with some irony, isn't it, it's three months since Michal Martin went to the Middle East and he was trying to kickstart a Middle Eastern peace process and the thinking was Ukraine was the war that was in everyone's mind and that everyone was forgetting about the Middle East and three months on, how things have shifted. Um, on the note of Ukraine, um, we discussed a few months ago some of the shortcomings in what the state was thinking about when it was planning a cut down on welfare and accommodation for Ukrainian arrivals and we spotted out some some possible shortcomings in it two months later. It's all just happening anyway, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I mean, this is kind of another point that goes back to no one knew what was happening when it all began. Because, you know, like in the beginning, there was so many supports put in place to offer people a safe place to come to and to start a life and to really, you know, give people a leg up in, in a very, very dire circumstance. But again, not not dissimilar to maybe the waning support for, for Vladimir Zelensky. There's no clear path in terms of how, when does it all end? So they have no choice now but to start putting in alternatives, Gavin. And what's in that? Uh, there's two main aspects to it. So firstly, uh, from the end of January, and by the way, it is from the end of January because they need to legislate for this. And on the Thursday, the people might get to see or watch this. The doll is rising for Christmas, so nothing's going to happen for about a month anyway. Um, they have to legislate so that they can now create a, basically a two-track welfare system, whereby those that are already here and need the support of the state to live, can't get work, will be entitled to uh, weekly sustenance payments of €220 Euro per week for adults and then a smaller rate for children. It's now proposed that from the end of January that those coming into the state who are living in state accommodation will only be paid 38.80 per week and 29 euro for adult or for children. It's the same as the, the payments for those in direct provision. Side note, by the way, this has now reanimated the question of whether the payments to those in direct provision are actually high enough that there's some well, obvi- obvious complaints that it's not enough to be able to live by or to meet your daily expenses if that's how little you're getting from the state. That's a, a separate de- debate which has been uh, revived by all of this. That's the first aspect. The second one, which perhaps is the more significant bit, is that the state will now only commit to accommodating uh, Ukrainians arriving here for the first 90 days in reception centres, after which they will effectively be told to try and sort out their own affairs. Now, I and other reporters were at a press conference yesterday, Tuesday, with Roger Gorman, where we asked, you know, how is this going to work? Are you genuinely saying that within 90 days they're all going to be able to find something? And he said, yes, the expectation and the experience of other countries where accommodation is time limited is that Ukrainians are resourceful and agile and mobile and that they will find something to sort themselves out, that they are not coming from areas that are economically deprived. They are all coming over here, a lot of them with savings and they're all coming over with good educations and they are broadly able to make their own way. But nonetheless, there is a fear that after 90 days, if you have somebody who is being effectively kicked out of a uh, reception centre, they may have nowhere else to go. And then they end up going to the Department of Housing. And although they have no technical right to housing, the government obviously has a moral duty to sort them out. And therefore, you have them being passed from one government department to another and potentially still living in emergency accommodation also, for I mean, a long like, time afterwards. The idea that people would be educated, maybe a little bit of money in their pockets, is one thing, but like when there's literally nowhere to rent and there's nowhere to like live, the housing crisis is still, mm. it doesn't matter how, you know, education, how much, you know, you have, it's still going to be a big challenge. Yeah. Actually, there's no stock there. Well, there's the one thing that, that I found most interesting about covering it for the last couple of days is that some of the concerns that we identified a couple of months ago when we were talking about it, like, you know, the fact that there was no private rented accommodation for anyone else, or if you had children attending a school in a reception centre mm. and then they were moved after three months, where does the kid go? Um, none of those things really appeared to have been 
changed very much. So there will now be some extra effort made to make sure that there is continuity of education for children. So they are, are they sticking with that? It was sort of, I think somebody described it as shadow schooling in the reception centre. Is that part of yeah, this? Yeah, in effect, and that it seems like until the family has now found itself some kind of permanent accommodation afterwards, that they will sort the child out with transports to and from, so that even if they aren't living in uh, the same reception centre, that they will still be enrolled in the school there, in the shadow school, for as long as they are still mobile or transient or until they get themselves fully nailed down, which is obviously welcome and it gives them a bit of continuity. But it does then raise the question of, do we have the resources even to ship them across an entire city? You know, for example, if it were a City West style thing or Stradbally, the electric picnic site, which is now not the tents, but they're creating kind of pod style accommodation for them to live on that site. If you're living there for three months and you're attending a shadow school on the grounds of Stradbally and three months on, you're moved to somewhere else in the Midlands, like they seem to be proposing that you'd still get door-to-door transport back to the same school until such time as you found yourself a permanent home, which seems noble, but also slightly impractical, I think. Elsewhere in the world, uh, at the time of recording, uh, the ink is just drying on a deal struck by almost 200 sovereign states at the COP28 talks in which there is no formal commitment to phase out the use of fossil fuels, but there is, at least notionally, finally for the first time, a recognition that fossil fuels are part of the problem and they need uh, the steady reduction over time. Um, I don't want immediately to be cynical out of the box, Richard, but it's very difficult not to be cynical by this kind of fudge being arrived at at the last minute, which is better than the deal that was almost not good enough on Tuesday, yet still far, far less than what most people wanted to begin with. Well, it depends on who you mean by most people. So most of the countries there who signed up to say, look, this means the same thing. That's the message. So like you're making the point there about the the language in it in terms of phasing out fossil fuels. Mm. So that was the initial starting point for most of the Western countries in the world, particularly Europe, let's just say European standpoint. Phase out. At some point, we will no longer be using fossil fuels at all. That language, which was a major sticking point for the likes of Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, all the big oil and gas producing countries, they don't like the idea of phasing out. Mm. So they've moved to this point of transitioning away, um, which allows both sides to basically say that they got what they wanted. Eamon Ryan says it basically means the same thing. We're just pushing our way past fossil fuels, and this is the beginning of the end for them. Um, It's an interesting one. It is the first time um, Mm. ever uh, that a UN agreement between all these con- con- countries has basically spelled out what the elephant in the room is, and that is fossil fuels um, needs to be, you know, we need to start moving away from them in a big way, um, and that, you know, we've lost a lot of time. So this is the first time we've ever called out, you know, as a globe, yeah. the problem as it is. There are some interesting bits in the deal um, that was struck. There are some interesting problems in the deal as well, uh, particularly in how it was announced. Um, so oh. your man, um, your man, our friend from last week, Sultan Al Jaber, <laughs> COP twenty eight mm. president Sultan Al Jaber, um, announced a deal uh, while the representatives of small Pacific islands, small island states, as they're called, as a grouping, uh, who basically are the most vulnerable as it stands uh, immediately. Mm. They're already feeling the effects of climate change in terms of. Freak weather patterns, mm. yeah. rising tides, they effectively feel like they were going to be washed away by this. Being wiped out, effectively. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. And they feel that they, were, they weren't in the room, they say, when this was announced. Um, they're like, the representative of Samoa, who's the, le- the leader of that grouping of islands, um, she said, we're a bit confused by all this. It feels, feels like this has been gaveled through, like it was voted through without us being in the room. You've just announced this is happening. Um, we're not going to stand in the way of this, but this is very much the bare minimum. Another representative, and I just saw this before coming in, th- th- compared the solution to being 
we're all now in a leaky canoe and we're not going to, you know, sink the canoe ourselves because we need it, but we have to look after this and make sure that this, that we're still dishing the water out of this thing. Um, effectively, it's an imperfect solution to the problem. Um, it does have some interesting bits in there in terms of one of the, the big problems about trying to address fossil fuels is the fact that so many developing countries, as they're previously been called around the world, are completely reliant on fossil fuels to try and get their economies going mm. or to run, to fuel, you know, their 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 societies as they're trying to grow up. For example, in the production of concrete, hugely yeah. dependent on fossil fuels. There will be a change in world finance and in terms of systems there to try and allow people to go towards more, you know, climate friendly solutions. But it's not an ideal thing. Again, it's a it's a commitment and it's a signature a signature on a piece of paper. Do you remember the Paris Agreement? I mean, this is still all part of that framework. Yeah. But we've seen how easily big countries can pull out of that if they want as well. Mm. Do you think it's like I suppose another reminder that you know while change is slow, it still has to happen, and no matter how slow it is, it's still progress is some kind of progress. Or <laughs> I, I like trying. it's frustrating because I think people probably feel like they don't see immediate action, or you don't see a trade like you don't get that immediate sort of satisfaction from these types of things. But actually. Is it all of these conversations year after year after year that, that contribute towards an overall? Outcome? Yeah, I, I think to a point. So I made the observation last week that two years ago in Glasgow at COP26, they were only then talking about a loss and damage fund where they would explicitly uh, mm. compensate countries like those Pacific Island nations or those micro nations that are losing their territory. And that was two years ago unthinkable. And now it happened on day one of the summit. So at least there is some progress. I was grappling, though, as I was um, coming out to the studio today, whether in some circumstances, whether no deal would be better than a bad deal uh, and whether you count this as a bad deal or not. Because you could argue that if the deal that is done is bad or is not ambitious enough, then if you've already prescribed the bare minimum that some countries are expected to do, then that's all they will ever do. They won't allow themselves to be kind of bullied or coerced by the rest of the world into doing things they don't want because they'll say, hang on, this is all we committed to this far and no further, in which case you don't do enough. Whereas no deal in those circumstances could at least mean that you're retaining the prospect for forcing them into better action a little further down the line. But on the flip side, time is of the essence. And one of the major talking points at COP28 this time was that we need 2025, two years from now, to be the all-time high for emissions, at which point then we need to start dramatically reducing carbon emissions to reach our targets mm. by 2013, 2050. And if you were to allow things to go on long-fingered again for another 12 months and there was no deal out of this, then like getting a deal done 12, 12 months time, even if it was a better deal, would be too late to enact meaningful change. Mm. So I, I'm like, I can see the positives on both sides, but also I can see why those, maybe, maybe this is the, the, the luxury of being a Western European person who already lives in a very, fairly developed society that has enough concrete and steel anyway, that this doesn't feel like it goes far enough. I also feel as well, like sometimes, you know, when you talk about targets and whether they're ambitious enough or not, you know, what's the what's the benefit to setting targets that aren't achievable then as well? But then, you know, what's the difference between setting something that's ambitious and maybe not necessarily reaching up but getting pretty close or, you know, setting them and, and not achieving them at all? The problem is, is most that a lot of the countries who are signing up to this probably have no notion at all or no no fee, no intention of ever meeting what needs to be done here in terms mm. of emissions reductions. Uh, Sultan Al Jabber has talked a good game. He has found himself heavily criticised by multiple climate scientists and activists, given the fact that he is the president or the CEO, I should say, uh, of an oil company which fully intends to ramp up production mm. next year and That's into not. the future. Mm. Um, so where is the Where's the science there that he keeps on pointing to? The problem is that we've already seen really alarming stuff over the past 12 months in terms of where 
you know, the, the global heat patterns we've seen in terms of extreme weather, the 1.5 degrees rise in overall average temperatures from the 1800s, which is the level we were meant to be meeting mm, to do yeah. all this, to keep it within that. Uh, that, that, that. That mark, some scientists are already believe is within reach of happening within the next, you know, couple of years, which is incredibly worrying. So mm. um, all of this stuff and saying, well, we might get around to just transitioning. Yeah, we might get this done and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't, it misses the point. Yeah. Because it's, it, it doesn't matter how many conferences and how many conver- con- congresses we do about these things. Uh, there's still, you know, precious little in terms of immediate addressing or seizing and, and grasping the nettle of the crisis. Yeah. And one point as a something of a counter to that is that even if the battle for, for 1.5 is lost, mm-hmm. it's still worth your while trying to yeah, chase 1.6 yeah, or totally. 1.7 because 1.6 is better than 1.7. 1.7 is better than 2. 2 is sure. better than 3. Yeah. And if it's 3 degrees, then as we said last week, large parts of the planet just become uninhabitable. Um, the point you made actually, though, about the developing world, Richard, is a good one because sometimes, you know, we can have this very Western view, like you said, a European view that we all know this is inevitable. Why don't we all just do it? And firstly, of course, there's the petro states that aren't going to commit to their own redundance, that they're going to want to have something to future-proof their own economies. Mm-hmm. But the point about, you know, for, for every island nation that's already losing some territory, there are, you know, landlocked uh, African countries that see existing solutions as the only way they can grow their economies. You know, you mentioned concrete. Steel is another example. Um, Ed Conway, actually, the economics editor of Sky News, had a really good blog this week about um, the amount of steel that exists in some countries uh, per head of population. And as you'd expect, North America and Western Europe have by far a higher amount of steel per population than anyone else, because that's buildings like this one. It's the overpasses on the M50 just outside. All of that is it's the fundamental building block of the, the modern developed infrastructural world. And if there's parts of the world that don't have much steel and want to be able to build motorways and industrial estates and whatnot, and they're being told that the energy forms that help to create steel are now off limits, they sort of feel like they're being condemned to permanent poverty because there isn't at least the perception of there being some other way for them to grow their way out of the situations that they're currently in. So you can understand to a point some of the cynicism that there is about you know, the, the West foisting rules upon them and the West saying that this is the technology we use to mm. become wealthy, but we're not going to mm. let you do the same thing. Yeah. And the, the USA, for example, as, you know, leading Western economy, it gets off pretty lightly, as some analysis an, an analysts have put about this in terms of what they're committing to try and help countries through, you know, going for the more um, climate friendly mechanisms of boosting their economy and fueling their countries. Um, they're only committing, I think it's something like $20 million in terms of overall funding to this thing. Uh, obviously, there's a huge amount of funding which is already in existence, but really there needs to be a massive step up across the boards if we're actually going to you know, address that gap, that mm. gap of finances and that gap in fairness for uh, particularly countries in Africa um, who are left effectively saying, well, how else are we meant to do this if we can't use coal or oil? Yeah. To, to, to keep things going. Uh, and all of it, meanwhile, Zara, all depends on countries actually then taking this global framework and then actually doing stuff domestically to make it happen. And yeah. that that's not the sort of thing that you agree at a global summit either. No, and it's kind of the point that Richard made as well. Like some people have no intention and that's the problem. You know what I mean? That they go to these sort of international events and they show up and, you know, it's it's the razzmatazz of, of the whole thing and you're, you have to be present at it and you stand on the world stage and you sign up and you make your commitments and then you go home and you forget about it. And that's the problem is that, you know, even ourselves, we can be doing better all the time. You know, Ireland is not, you know, we're, we're not exactly, you know, we're the shining star leaders in this either, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I think when we look at, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of look at what does the future look like for us, Gavin? I mean, how 
like how do we reach our own our own targets? We have our own problems, you know. Well, we do. Not only do we still not know for certain how we're going to reach our targets, but to a certain degree, and this is all the more remarkable when you think that Eamon Ryan was among the leaders of the EU delegation mm-hmm. at the COP talks this week. We still domestically haven't even agreed. Uh, how, what measures are needed, let alone whether we're going to implement those measures. So when we talk about needing to uh, cut Ireland's overall emissions by the year 2030, it's all within certain sectors. So there's an agreement that we need to get transport emissions down by this percentage and agriculture by that percentage. Mm-hmm. The one There's actually one part called land use, which we haven't even fully nailed down exactly how much we're going to cut by. And land use is things like which plants or which breeds of tree do you have on certain forestry and then how how good are they at turning carbon dioxide back into oxygen? How good are they at cleansing the atmosphere? We still haven't even done the sums on what is needed on that front, let alone then actually get about having the rubber meeting the road. And when you think that 2025 has to be the year that things peak, mm. after which then they come down forever, it's very hard to imagine that that will actually happen. I remember talking to somebody in government about a year ago, uh, someone who was in, in one minister's camp, who fully foresaw that when push comes to shove, that actually agriculture and its role in trying to cut carbon emissions would probably be the straw upon which this government fell, if, if it doesn't make the whole tenure. Because the Greens on one side and Fine Gael on the other would just find it irreconcilable that you'd be asking farmers and forestry to do certain things that might not be tenable. Whether that is what ultimately happens, I don't know. But like it was already being flagged long ago by somebody within government that they didn't think that this was ultimately going to be something they could actually do. And do bear in mind, as a closing thought, when the government was formed in 2020, two closing thoughts. Uh, remember how carbon emissions fell during lockdown because no one was driving anywhere and then lockdown was lifted and people went back driving again a bit and suddenly the emissions went driving back up. Mm. The level of, of uh, carbon cuts that we managed to achieve when basically everyone was staying at home is the sort of thing that you would need to achieve and then lock in and then compound every year for like eight or nine years in order to meet our targets by 2030. We did like have our, our emissions by then. And as soon as lockdown was over, we just kind of went back to living our old lives again. There was very little by way of like long-term sustainability. And it kind of goes back to the point about how realistic are the targets that we set then as well and what is actually achievable. And if you think about just what is necessary to achieve them, in 2020 when the government was being formed, uh, the Department of the Taoiseach commissioned research to see exactly what you would need to do to achieve, for example, a 1% cut in uh, transport emissions. And the volume of cars that you'd need to remove off the road just to achieve a 1% cut would already be so socially transformative. Like you'd be talking about people like giving up a car and never having a car ever and ever again. And that would achieve the goal for one year. And then you'd need that to be the new normal and cut more the following year and the year after and the year after and the year after. Like in truth, a lot of me wonders whether we could ever achieve those sorts of goals. But the point is that we still have to try, don't we? We do. And I think it's it's interesting for all of the, I mean, the we, we, we approach this with quite a, a cynical eye, I think, uh, COP28's outcome. And rightly so, you need to question, you know, what the commitments actually will bring about and whether or not it will, will, will be enough. Mm. Um, I think there's a, a message from people, including Antonio Guterres, who's been probably one of the strongest voices uh, for climate action, the UN Secretary General. Uh, he says basically that the outcome of COP28 and for all the arguments and rows they had about phasing out versus transitioning away from fossil fuels. The end of fossil fuels is inevitable. The only question is whether or not we do it in time. But one point, which I actually was looking for, um, The Guardian reported this a couple of days ago in terms of who actually attended COP28. Uh, Fossil fuel lobbyists, the number of them at COP28, 2,456, which is higher than any delegation at COP28, apart from uh, Brazil and the host, the UAE. Um, And that's probably something which is going to continue at the next COP, which is taking place in another Hmm. major oil state, and that is Azerbaijan. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Closer to home, uh, we're still dealing with some of the political fallout from the events in Dublin City Centre three weeks ago, the stabbings and subsequent disorder. Um, By the way, at the time of recording, uh, the youngest victim of those that were uh, attacked in Parnell Square East still in paediatric ICU, but there is a hope on the family's part that she might be able to be released to general ward uh, this side of Christmas, and fingers crossed that is exactly what happens. Um, Zara, we have some developing news at the time that we are going to air Mm-hmm. Um, about the use of facial recognition technology to perhaps try and prosecute on this. Yeah, so just before we start on that, just to say actually we, we've learned today that um, what was initially thought to have been about 6,000 hours of CCTV footage to be reviewed from the Dublin riots has now doubled and they're looking at around 12,000 hours. So you can imagine that's a lot of police work. It's a lot of yeah. people trawling through footage. So uh, this latest announcement now from the Justice Minister saying retrospective use of facial recognition technology is to be permitted to assist Garthi when they are screening CCTV footage and help to build stronger, safer communities. And obviously this is, the goal of this is to free up guards basically Mm. that, you know, let the technology do the work and let the police get back out on the beach. Now, here's an interesting point though on it. You know, it could take up to a year obviously to procure these things and to buy in the technology. So it is my understanding that um, because of this legislation, it means that Ireland will now be allowed to ask for help from outside sources like the likes of Europol or Interpol in terms of, you know, can we use your system to scan our footage, basically? Okay, so that then would imply that at present we don't, or at least those responsible for yeah. law and order, don't think that it is legally sound to ask for that help as it currently stands. Mm-hmm. That is interesting because Drew Harris, when he attended the Joint Policing Committee at Dublin City Council two weeks ago, said that that was already what they were going to do. Now, maybe he was saying that on the presumption that legislation would come in to allow it, mm. but they were saying that because we didn't currently have the powers in Ireland to use FRT to try and, you know, electronically identify somebody and track them across multiple frames of, of footage, that they would already need someone else's help to do it, but that they had some friendly other law enforcement agencies. He didn't name them. Maybe it's the PSNI, maybe it's the Met, maybe it's others in Britain, who knows. But that they were going to basically get them to do it because we couldn't. Uh, and this now would imply that actually we were asking without being actually able to do it. Well, now we are able to do it. So I suppose it's, it's you yeah. know, somewhat good news on, on that front. But look, I mean, we've talked about this before and, you know, it's this is going to take months and months and months, even with the facial mm. recognition technology. It's going to take a really long time. And, you know, for people to realise that, you know, more than 30 people have appeared before the courts, but actually since the night itself, no one has been arrested at this point or at this time of recording. You know, more arrests will come, but I think, you know, it's fair to say, Richard, this footage plays a big part in how they identify people and and figure out who's involved in it. 
Yeah, I would hesitate before we could say this is good news in terms of what happened in the Dublin riots, because this is a very serious piece of legislation, which there are already some political views that this is being hammered through the doll at great speed when there was such a controversy over it, which actually split the government mm -hmm. uh, over the first time round yeah. when it was put in, uh, looped together with the body cams legislation as well. Um, there has to be a serious debate about it and a grown-up debate about how this uh, technology can be used, what the implications are for civil liberties, because this uh, legislation will actually impact anybody who walks in front of a CCTV camera in the future because it can then potentially be used and trawled back and your face, your image may be used in the scanning back of, the, of this sort of thing. So, yeah, there, in terms of the overall investigation, leaving aside the facial recognition point of it, yeah, there is a huge body of work to be done in terms of going back through and identifying people who are involved in uh, riotous disorder. There's multiple investigations going on in terms of, you know, that as well, in terms of incitement of the riots as well. Plus, um, in terms of, you know, the looting thing has already been looked at as well, plus the investigation into the stabbing itself. Yeah. There is actually hope now in the Garda and the things that they could be in a position uh, to actually interview um, the person of interest who has also been in hospital uh, due to an improvement in his situation but we'll wait think, and see. I think that there's mixed reports on that though because the guards that I spoke to this morning said that he's not anywhere near ready to be interviewed. At this well stage. that's not at this stage yeah we're not speculating on anybody's health but they do they are hoping that at some point they will be able to do that. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think that that body cams bill will get through very quickly at all at all because as you say Richard the, there was a coalition split on this the Greens didn't want it to be looped in with the body cams uh, legislation and so it's been split off but one of the major concerns about the use of uh, facial recognition technology is that if you used it in real time, and I know, sorry, you said retrospective because they, mm. they don't mean in real time, but if you were to allow it to be used in real time, you could have a situation where basically any guard wearing a body cam would be immediately able to basically profile somebody based on where they've been in the past, whether they've attended political demonstrations of any colour or ilk. And that's a bit of a concern for civil liberties things and that, that's why the, the Green Party were so reluctant about it. So I'd say they'd be going through all of that very, very carefully indeed. Um, elsewhere in the world, um, the at the time that people will get to listen to or watch this, European leaders will be in Brussels uh, for their last formal summit of the year. They'll be talking about the prospect of pursuing some sanctions against Israel. Um, we had also some pretty significant news inside the last 24 hours of the time of recording. Um, it is pretty unusual ordinarily, Richard, that you'd have an emergency meeting of the UN General Assembly, even more so that you'd have multiple in the space of a couple of weeks and that you'd have a resolution tabled and passed within a day. Yeah, absolutely. And that just shows, I suppose, where the international community has shifted to on this. I suppose it's, it's worth even looking back at how the General Assembly voted on you know, previous resolution uh, with regards to uh, Israel's actions uh, in Gaza in response to the attacks on October 7th. Um, as usual, there's no real... There's no real outcome to this in terms of, it just shows again the weight of global opinion on this. Um, but I mean, huge number of, of countries voting um, for uh, humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Um, what is interesting, I suppose, and probably is almost more noteworthy is, I suppose, where the United States of America now finds itself in this. The criticism which Joe Biden has now for the first time aimed at the Israeli government is something worth noting. But it seems that the response from the Israeli side is whether or not there is global support for what we are doing in Gaza, we are still going to continue to do it. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden using the phrase indiscriminate bombing, uh, which is, um, yeah, that is the first time we've heard that sort of level of criticism aimed yeah. at the Israeli government. And yet still... From his government anyway. Still voting against, though, calls for a ceasefire, presumably on the basis that they just don't think Hamas is a reputable partner that they can't trust Hamas not to use it as regrouping time.
basically. Is that where we are? I think that's supposedly where we are at this point in time as well as that. I think it would be a major step for the United States to vote against Israel at a UN General Assembly having already vetoed uh, the Security Council yeah. resolution on the same thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Only 10 countries voted against that. Austria, the Czech Republic, or Czechia as it now likes to be called, uh, Guatemala, Israel itself, Liberia, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, Paraguay and the United States. It's hardly a very big club mm. that the US and Israel find itself in now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just important, like, you know, not to put too fine a point in it, but as we talk, you know, week after week, there are so many people who are just suffering and dying at the centre of this. And, you know, particularly what we see that are happening in hospitals in Gaza at the moment, it's just like, this is not, this is not changing. It's not getting any better. It's getting worse week mm. to week. The one thing that actually really kind of shook me this week as we were still putting together more, more reports about it in the newsroom, um, some footage landed on Monday morning of some of the trucks crossing from Rafa and they were bringing just supplies of bottled water. And the, the pure, like, really, the only thing described is carnage. The total carnage that unfolded then as people were almost like setting upon the trucks the second that they got into Gaza, trying to raid it for any shred of clean drinking water that they could possibly get to be able to have it for themselves or to be able to bring home to their families. Like, it is such a, a desperate, like, desperate is the, is the only word I can think of. Like, it's such a craven scramble now to get anything you possibly can. And and it's only going to get like worse and worse and worse. Mm. Um, we were marking also when we were uh, having our planning call about the advertising campaign by the um, mm. the retail outlet that unfortunately shares your name, alas, uh, and the rather tasteless approach that they were taking to some of the ads. Yes, yeah, so I hadn't actually seen this. It was, was it you who put that down in the note that it was... Yeah, it was, it was kicking off online. Yeah, all right. And it's very widely shared at this point in time, the, the ads. A lot of people were very much upset by what they saw in them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like Zara, anyone who shops on Zara or has seen anything from Zara will know that their photographs can tend to be a little bit odd. Or it's, sometimes it's it's sort of an abstract concept, maybe, mm. I mean, to, to try and sell dresses and jackets and things. But I mean, I think insensitive is probably the best way to describe it. Foolish. I mean, they did say, I'm just looking here at a line, they had said that this campaign had been shot before the war broke out and that it was... So we should probably explain what the ad is. Yeah. So the, yeah. the, the ads are, are people that are basically in... What, I don't know how you'd even describe the scenes as they were formally photographed, but they look very, very reminiscent of some of the photographs that you can't help but have seen in the last three months of people in wreckage in Gaza, often surrounded by the remains of loved ones in that kind of uh, sterile, anonymous looking uh, white sheets that the people of the Muslim faith are buried in. Mm. And the the models in the Zara ads were basically pictured surrounded by bags that looked very like the corpses of Palestinian children. Mm. And yes, okay, fair enough, it might have been shot last summer, months ago. But the idea that somebody in marketing said, yeah, let's run the campaign now, and not realising the clear echoes that there were of events that had developed subsequently. I, I mean, I just, I can't fathom what PR system or what level of screening there was that nobody internally shouted stop to say don't run those pictures because they were so tasteless. Yeah, because it's so striking as well. It is yeah. a very evocative image. Like I'm there is a, there, yeah, yeah, a is, picture yeah. of a model holding a mannequin wrapped, as you say, in, in, in white plastic. The, um, yeah, Zara said that they, that customers saw something that was far from what was intended and mm -hmm. they regret that this was a misunderstanding. But I just think that anyone who has switched on a television or has looked at their phone over the last couple of months will have seen mm -hmm. images which have haunted them, yeah. uh, which look very much like this. Yeah, I just think it, like, I mean, it's, uh, looking at it now, sorry, I'm actually getting a chance to look at it here. I just think it's an absolute, like, it's just totally in poor taste. And they say here that they were trying to, the inspiration for the shoot was that it was meant to be like um, a sculpture studio and these were supposed to be unfinished statues. But I think as you say, Richard, I mean, it's like you don't even need to be 
it's everywhere. It's just such a poor, poor decision to have made. Yeah, I think um, worth mentioning as well before we wrap up on this is that um, the situation in Gaza, and we, we talked last week about how the fact that 80% of people in Gaza have been displaced, they no longer mm. are in their home. Um, the situation with regards to their well-being and their shelter has been completely exacerbated and made all the worse over the last 24 hours or so. Uh, but the fact that it's been a huge storm, uh, a lot of the you know makeshift shelters that have been there have been washed away. Uh, and the living conditions there are completely bad. This also makes a huge impact, obviously, the amount of rainwater there uh, and the lack of any water treatment as well. This is a huge, huge problem in terms of overall drinking water, which has already been a massive problem. Uh, the level of drinking water and what clean water that's available to Gazans is absolutely minuscule, well below any international standard. And this is, you know, almost another natural disaster dumped upon them uh, at the worst possible time. Uh, Zara, earlier in the year, you uh, joined us in the group chat from LA when you mm. were covering the Oscar buzz, and it really felt like it was a golden time for Irish nominees. Could be getting more of that in the Golden Globes. Yeah. Rolling in nominations. Rolling in nominations. Ireland is doing so well internationally. I mean, I said this at the time when I was in LA, but I mean, we really are up there in terms of, you know, success. And I think it's just Ireland is definitely on the map for a teeny tiny country. Mm. Uh, the Golden Globes are also an interesting awards relative to the Oscars because the Oscars we all know that it's it, it's, a, it's a little bit political and there's lots of lobbying and lots of campaigning and lots of uh, canvassing and all of that. The Golden Globes at least previously not so much because the Golden Globes in previous years Richard weren't they just basically a stitch up by a very small cabal of self-selecting foreign journalists and all Very heavily criticised for a long time particularly in terms of the diversity of the people they actually ended up nominating uh, How does for it actually work? Is it voting among a certain cohort? Or? The Hollywood Foreign Press Association is the group that, do, that does it anyway. But yeah, there was previously, they have now addressed, they say, many of the concerns. I think that the criticism has died down as a result, but there was a lack of transparency and it was just a very, it wasn't exactly like, for in a lot of the ways, I mean, it's a good idea to have all of your your foreign press correspondents in Hollywood have a vote and have their own award ceremony. But the way that it was actually doled out in the end was very sort of it was it was iffy to say the to say the least in terms of you know what it actually put in the end. Plus the categorization, the fact that they have Hollywood or in motion picture or drama versus motion picture, uh, musical or comedy, mm. and because of how competitive it can be to get you know one slot for motion picture for drama, mm. some films which were very much not musicals or comedies were in the musical and comedy section. So <laughs> yeah, look, it's um, it's it's his own interesting awards, but yeah, amazing to see three not acting nominations for Ireland again: uh, Killian Murphy, Andrew Scott, and Barry Keoghan. Um, and Oppenheimer, which um, Killian Murphy is nominated for, uh, seems to be slightly the front runner in terms of mm. in terms of thinking towards now uh, the Oscars as well. But it's just it, it does say that it comes at a time when there's a huge. Oh, it's amazing! Yeah, I mean, even amazing. just even you look back at the Booker Award nominations, even just a few weeks ago, there's multiple Irish authors up for that as well. Yeah. So okay. in terms of arts and culture. Um, Ireland has very much an outsized footprint there anyway. It was interesting like when I went to the Oscar Wilde event and I was interviewing some people in the American film business on the green carpet there and they talked about I know it's a green carpet yeah. yeah. but actually I thought what was really interesting is that they're very taken aback by what they would perceive to be great support for our artists in the country. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of artists who listen to the podcast that so they could do a bit more support. But, mm. you know, schemes like, wasn't there that scheme earlier in the year where Catherine Martin introduced mm -hmm. a, a lottery, income, yeah. Yeah, yeah, lottery kind of for a certain number of artists. And, you know, there's a, a film producer that I spoke to and I cannot remember his name off the top of my head now, but he was saying that actually the fact that you're giving people that time and space and income to be creative, because obviously being creative is time consuming. You know, you can't be working a full time job and mm. also sort of writing an Oscar award winning movie that actually that is Ireland investing in that level of of 
you know, success yeah. really and putting the time and money into I, it. I think I remember the same being observed actually, Richard, about some of the authors that were nominated for the, for the Booker or some other major literary awards because they were saying that unlike in the other countries in the Anglosphere where basically you're left to your own devices and you have to try and make it work, that because Ireland has a certain level of financial support that guarantees you the time to be able to go away and work on your art, that that's where it's where we dividends then. Yeah, and um, if you take Paul Murray, for example, who won the Booker for, for Profit Song, which I finished there yesterday, it's a banger of a book, absolutely unbelievable. Um, but he's also art- artist in residence at um, the University of Maynooth. So like those are other little things which do exist to try and keep, you know, Irish artists, art authors and artists um, sort of going, that there is artist in residence, there's author in residence schemes which are in place um, at our main, you know, institutions of education. So yeah, huge amount of support there if you compare it to other countries which do seem to take a more... I don't know a, a rougher approach yeah. to, to their to their great art market idea, but I mean there's some great stuff which is nominated across the Golden Globes because obviously it takes into account you know film as well as television mm. uh, succession very much leading the way in terms of television. It looks like it's going to clean up, you know, have a good old time of it. As oh, well, like but it should just to give it a kind of a, a nod on its way that it'd be kind of outrageous if something that was as culturally dominant didn't clean up in its final year. Really. Yeah. yeah, it does happen though sometimes where you have, you know, big, big shows come to the end of their run you expect them to, well, this will be the send-off. You'll get all of the main acting awards will go to the, the, the cast. Sometimes it doesn't happen, so it's mm. worth watching for that. Uh, you said Prophet Song was good. Any other uh, Christmas reading recommendations you'd offer? What did I read there recently? Prophet Song is, I would 100% because like that is, you know, there's amazing books which are happening from, which are coming out from Irish artists or authors at the moment. Prophet Song was a one day read for me. It was absolutely really? incredible. Oh, wow. uh, the Beast Thing by Paul Murray, which was pipped to the Booker Award, yeah. but won the Irish Book of the Year. Uh, that's meant to be amazing. So I'm going to try and get in that. But there's just great stuff going on. What else did I read? Murakami, that Japanese author, his book about running, which is really good. Uh, and what else was the other one I finished up there recently? But the idea that like, the idea that a Booker winner is a one day read because sometimes they have a reputation for being quite dense to get through. The idea that it's one that you just sit down and tear through is makes it very attractive. I think as a prospect, it was just it was the, the level of shocking. So people will probably are be aware of the story in it now. It's basically it's an Ireland in the future. Well, it's not really in the future. It's set in a contemporary alternative Ireland where there's more there's a slide into authoritarianism. There's a, a right wing government which takes in and hammers away civil liberties. The first fifty or sixty pages are probably the best fifty or sixty pages I've read of any book wow. uh, in a long, 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 long time. It's just like you can't stop reading after you get to them. Because uh, it's just, there's the familiarity of Ireland in it and Dublin, a contemporary Dublin, which is mm. just, you know, such an alien sort of, uh, you know, mask put up on it. It's really, really incre- incredible writing. Yeah, fascinating yeah. stuff. Uh, we are at the tail end of what is our last formal episode uh, of mm. the year. We are going to be back in the... I wouldn't say it's formal though either. Yeah, well... It's very, very <laughs> informal. <laughs> yeah. the, the shaggy nature of this episode will tell you that it's very we're informal. Yeah. Ties. It's never formal. Before um, so, you go, I meant to tell you, by the way, Teresa Mannion, give her a shout out. She was watching the podcast last week and I meant to tell you, she sent on a lovely message and she watches the podcast. So we love Teresa Mannion. Thank Mannion. you for that. Yeah. Oh. I meant to send that to both of you. Hi, Teresa. Good Thanks for your lovely Thanks. message. Yeah. Shout out to Teresa. So thanks thanks very very much such a doge. I love uh, so we will be back in the week between Christmas and New Year's. We have a kind of a look back at the year with some special guests popping into studio, which we're all very much looking forward to. That's going to be airing on the 28th, Thursday the 28th uh, at 10 o'clock on so Virgin Media so. 1. That is the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we hope so. We'll do it no. if it's not. It's probably Italian at intermittent periods between the Christmas <laughs> and New Year's. We you might find it. On anyway. yeah. There'll probably be a repeat on Virgin Media 4 somewhere. So get it on series link. All yeah. the time. All the time. Uh, so we will catch you then. Of course, we'll have an audio version of that as well. But until then, this is our last regular weekly installment for the year. We but the Christmas special is going to be great. I'm actually quite excited. For Christmas slash New Year special really good, yeah. on the 28th and then we are back with our regular installments on Wednesday the 10th of January. Before then, thank you Richard. Gavin. Thank you Zara. Thank you. Thank you to uh, Aubrey, Rory, everyone on the floor, everyone in the gallery, Ross, Tommy, Tommy and everyone Rob. who puts the whole thing together. Thank you all very much. Have yourselves a merry little Christmas and we'll see you very soon. Bye. 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 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.